The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The text for this morning's sermon is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. First Peter three one. Likewise, wives, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Father in heaven, I pray that you would open this text up to us for our good and for your glory. There's, there, are, there's a, there are a few passages in the Bible that are, that are hardest to hear in our day, in our culture, and, and this is one of those passages that goes right against the flow of our culture. So as your people, I pray for faith I pray that you would open this text up to us as husbands and wives, and and I do pray that singles, both male and female, will, will, will take away the implications of this text in its profoundly Godward way of living. So help us receive this word and guard us from distorting it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, uh, I have to confess, I, I wrote an introduction, and when I got all through with the sermon, I thought, I'm going to save my introduction to the end. <laughs> so there's a teaser. <laughs> Not yet. Uh, because I wanted to massage the text in, and it seems best to do that at the end. So I'm going to go right to the context in First Peter, and... Uh, Maybe I'll just give you the overall outline. We're going to look at the context in 1 Peter, and then we're going to look at the instructions to the wives, and then we're going to look at the instructions to the husbands, and then we'll get to the conclusion. So four big units. Uh, first of all, context in 1 Peter. And I want you to... Well, well, I really want to remind you of three things about this context here in 1 Peter. Number one, we are sojourners 
and exiles here on this earth because our eternal citizenship is in heaven. Remember, Peter addresses the, the believers, the churches receiving this letter as sojourners and exiles. It's in verse 1 1. It's in also in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. What's the point? Well, the point is to underscore that our true eternal citizenship, our home is in heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I love chapter 2, verse 9, in its description of us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As Christians, by the grace of God, this is our eternal nationality. And it gives us a purpose for living to the glory of God. We, it's as if we, we live in this, in this world as resident aliens. Have you ever seen a green card? It says resident alien on it. We are like resident aliens here on this earth. And the, the passport that I have, this is U.S. passport, well, that's... That's really the, the temporary uh, version of my citizenship because I belong to the kingdom of God and I live in subjection to him under the lordship of Christ. He is my sovereign. And as a resident alien here in submission to his lordship, I submit to the authorities that he has given me here. But this Godward way of living is shot through this passage, and I want you to see it right at the beginning. We live in subjection to Christ as our Lord. He's our sovereign. He's our king. We are his people, strangers and aliens here on this earth. The second point, this is just by way of reminder, as, as sojourners, strangers, exiles here, as resident aliens, we will suffer here on this earth. Peter makes it clear that we'll likely suffer because we live in this world among people who, who may malign us, oppose us, persecute us, not understand us, and because of that, we'll suffer. Third reminder, when we suffer, we're called to do good. When we suffer, we're called to do good. Consistently, even when we're mistreated. Why? 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So even when we are wronged, we are to respond with conduct that's honorable, that even those who are opposing us may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Take that to mean on the day he visits the unbeliever who's opposing me with the gospel of grace, that they might glorify God by believing in Christ. So there's, there's this call to continue to, to do good for the glory of God, for the salvation of, of the people around us on this earth. 
And then we saw last week in, in the text Pastor Jason preached uh, verses 13 through 17 that we're called to live honorably for the Lord's sake in subjection to all authorities. Verse 13, to emperors, to governors, to masters, all toward the aim of verse 12 again, that, that they may see our good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So, that by living honorably here in this world, in submission to earthly authorities, we give glory to God, we show that we're worshiping our true sovereign and our true king in the hope that, that many around us, that unbelievers might glorify God on the day of visitation, they might believe and be saved. So, that's all by way of summary. Now, our text this morning is really continuing in that flow of thought, naming these relationships of submission to authorities, and that's why it begins with the word likewise in verse one. Now we're in the instructions to wives, verses one through six. So likewise, we'll just take, we'll take this in chunks. We'll take it in three chunks. One to six, verses one to six is the whole unit to wives, but we'll take them in three pieces. We'll take it in three pieces. Uh, first, the verses on submission, verses one and two. Then the verses on beauty, and then the, the example of Sarah from the Old Testament. So the first unit here in Instructions to Wives is on submission. I'm gonna read it again, verses one and two. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. Three things to note here. First, the teaching here is focused on a wife's submission to her own husband. The passage actually says it twice, but it's right here in verse one. The first mention that the Bible does not teach that all women ought to be subject to all men, but rather it's really clear Wives, be subject to your own husbands. In the, in the context of the covenant of marriage, a wife is to respect her husband, to, to submit to him as head of the marriage, head of the household. Number two, second thing to note, it's addressed to believing wives, and yet there's a special focus on those who are married to unbelievers. Some wives, like some of you, perhaps, and some that I've known through the years of pastoral ministry are married to unbelievers. Uh, husbands who this text describes as, as those, husbands who do not obey the word. And I take that to mean they don't obey the word of the gospel, they're unbelievers. And uh, I say that because of the way Peter uses this word obeying the word, obeying the gospel, believing that they might be saved. So unbelieving husbands are in view here. And, and again, just like we saw in 2.12, there's an evangelistic aim to it. That they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Hmm. So is the point here 
that a Christian wife shouldn't talk about the gospel with her unbelieving son or uh, unbelieving husband is, it, is the point that, that the believing wife shouldn't talk about Jesus to her unbelieving husband, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of your wives. I don't think so. I'll give you a couple reasons. One is, uh, just drop down to verse 15. Peter has a, a kind of evangelism that he's advocating. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So I think the point is not that speaking about God to your unbelieving husband is forbidden, but rather that she live in a Godward manner, and when the moment is right to talk about the gospel with her husband, perhaps again, she do it in a way that is gentle and not badgering, timely, this is a good time, and not pushy, and with reverence to God, and not with any kind of self-righteousness that she would be ing on him. I have relationships like this, and I, my hunch is you do too. I mean, I have relationships with people that I've known a long time, and we've talked about Christ and the fact that I believe and they have told me they do not believe. So what do I do when we get together for coffee? A couple weeks ago? I don't start there. It's on the table. We know where we are. But, but I am on the lookout for the timely moments and I have had the timely moments to speak about Christ again I think that's what he's talking about. I think that's what he's talking about. Peter basically says, in, in such a marriage, don't fo focus mainly on your husband's conversion. Focus mainly on your Godward relationship with me and your pure conduct before me. And then by faith in this text, pray that God would move your husband to ask and for a timely moment to speak with gentleness and respect. That's what I think he's saying. Third word from uh, verses one and two to wives. The wife's submission here is described in verse one as respectful and pure conduct. Now, I'm just gonna click on this word respectful as it's translated in the ESV. And the word is actually the word from which we get the word phobia, fear. And uh, it actually could be more literally translated that Peter is calling believing wives to submit to their own husbands by their pure conduct in fear. What does that mean? I'm going to quote from Tom Schreiner, and I smile because Tom Schreiner was part of Bethlehem back in the 80s, and he's a professor at Bethel 
seminary, and uh, we loved him here. We loved him at Bethel. He's now at, I don't even know where is he is. Is he at Southern Seminary? Yeah, he's at Southern Seminary. And he's a pastor scholar, and he has these two so helpful quotes. I'm going to read longer quotes from commentaries than I probably ever have. Uh, two paragraphs from Tom Schreiner, one on the word to the wives and one on the word to the husbands. And they're both this Godward orientation that I think Peter is so laboring to have a see. Here it is, Tom Schreiner. <laughs> I gotta just tell you one personal thing about Tom Schreiner just because it's so endearing. <laughs> Tom, I invited Tom to come and speak at my church in Iowa a long time ago. And he came and on Saturday, he just went out with me and my three sons and played ball with us Saturday afternoon. He's, he just loved my sons and just a good, godly man. Anyway, love Tom Schreiner. Anyway, Pastor Scholar, Tom Schreiner, in his scholar hat now. He says about this, this in fear, pure conduct in fear. What does that mean? That wives should be afraid of their husband? No. What should be emphasized here is that the fear is not directed to the husband. But as in chapter 2, verse 18, fear in 1 Peter is always directed toward God. Peter was not suggesting, therefore, that wives should fear their husbands, nor was he even suggesting that wives should respect their husbands, though Paul commended such in Ephesians 5, 33. Instead, Peter's point was that the good conduct of wives should stem from their relationship with God. Another scholar named Slaughter rightly says that wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict, nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands and not even because she thinks he is wise. She submits because of her relationship with and trust in God. So pure conduct in fear of God, in reverence for God, is the kind of conduct called for here. Okay, that's verses one and two. Let's go to verses three and four on beauty. Peter goes on to instruct these women to prioritize the cultivation of inner godliness, a hidden inner beauty of the heart. Verses three and four, I'll read them again. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, first off, it would be a total miss of the point if you looked at this and you said, oh, okay, so women, as women, we are called to uh, avoid care for the external person. You totally missed the point. The grammar prohibits that because if the text meant that, it was a call to uh, forbidding hairstyles or forbidding jewelry. It would also be forbidding clothing. And we know it's not teaching that. It's not teaching that. 
The point is not a ban on external beauty, but that wives would give even more care, priority care to their inner beauty, the beauty of the heart. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. It's a beautiful thing. Now I'm gonna save that. I'm gonna put all these together at the end. Now let's go to the next unit here, this example of Sarah, verses five and six. And then I'll just walk through my summary of the picture of what the wife is called to here. Peter supports this instruction with the illustration of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Verse five and six. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the illustration of Sarah's holiness, holiness is seen in that she, she's one who hopes in God. She submitted to her husband Calling him Lord. What, what does that mean? Calling him Lord. Uh, you can turn to Genesis 18, the text from which Peter sees this, and uh, it's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. So the messengers, the angels, came to Abraham and explained to Abraham that he and Sarah in their old age are going to have a baby. Physically impossible. And uh, when Sarah overheard that conversation, she said something to herself. Verse 12 of Genesis 18. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord, my husband, is old, shall I have pleasure? What's the point of this? This is very interesting. What is so special about this? Now, Sarah could have said to herself, uh, what, after I'm worn out and my old man husband is worn out too? She didn't say that. <laughs> she, said, she said, after I'm worn out and my Lord is worn out? Hmm, shall we have the pleasure of having a baby? She could have disparaged him as an old man too. It would have been true. But she didn't. Not in her private talk, not in her self-talk. She didn't. She thought, well, she honored him. Probably just who she is. She honored him in her, how she's thinking about him. And it comes out of her mouth when no one is looking except God. Peter uses this illustration from the self-talk of Sarah as an example of the inner attitude of submission and honor and love she had for Abraham. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. It comes right out her mouth. She speaks to him as her head, head of the marriage. Now, if I if I try, I tried to put into words a description of this woman as she's called to submit to her own husband. What, what, what does that look like? I just tried to put words on that, and here's my, 
Here's my attempt. She lives in godly fear and reverence for God, such that even though her husband does not believe, she does not let that draw her away from Christ. Her faith is steadily set upon her Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord in her life, and she lives in submission to his authority such that she lives under the headship of her husband out of faith in Christ. You see the two tiers here? Christ is head over her, and she lives in submission to her husband because Christ is head, and he calls her to it. She gives herself to pure conduct, godliness, and good deeds of love. She longs to see the salvation of her husband if he is an unbeliever, and yet she does not badger him, but lives a Christ-like, compellingly winsome life that even unbelievers see her godliness and hopefully give glory to God. She's strong in faith, despite the fact that her husband does nothing to encourage her faith She's strong and in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and she keeps on believing and hoping in God. She is stunningly beautiful, not because she gives undue emphasis to outward appearance, but because she has a godly beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that will never fade, a precious inner loveliness of the heart. And she's like the best of the holy women of the Bible who put their hope in God, being fearless even in the face of things that are terrifying. So she lives not in fear of her husband, but in fear and reverence for God. And she lives in submission to her husband as head of the marriage under Christ and gladly embraces her husband in this role, not only overtly, but even in the unspoken thoughts and attitudes of her heart. That's the picture I see, and it's a beautiful picture. Now, I have to speak a word of caution here. It is regrettably true that abusive husbands have used this text and others like it as a cover to disregard and belittle and dishonor and abuse their wives. And it's also regrettably true that abusive husbands have found cover in churches like ours that teach the complementarian view for their abusive behavior. How can that happen? No credible view of biblical manhood and womanhood would support or condone a husband's dishonor or abuse of his wife. None. How can this happen? Well, I'll tell you how it can happen. 
it's probably not, it's not just this text, and it's not just churches like ours. Abusive husbands will use anything they can. If the text can be a tool to abuse, they'll abuse with the text. If the church can be a cover for abuse, they'll, they'll, call, they'll use the church as a cover. They, abusive husbands use whatever they can for abusing, dominating, controlling their wives. So don't let that sin, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, don't let that sin wreck the plain, clear, beautiful meaning picture in this text. Just don't let that happen. And, and you know this. In fact, Jason alluded to it in the beginning. Speaking for the Bethlehem elders, we want to do all we can in our God-given authority to, to stop any kind of marital abuse from happening at Bethlehem. And, and you know if you're a wife in an abusive marriage, I hope you know you can contact us and we will engage and be helpful. And if you're a husband, and you feel called out on a Sunday like this when we're looking at these texts and you need help because you're not treating your wife with the honor she deserves. Come and talk to us. We would love to be helpful to you. Now, the instruction to husbands, it's just one verse. And there's enough here for a lifetime of husbanding, let me tell you. Um, here it is, uh, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I just want to point out three things about verse 7. Number one, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? Does that mean live with our wives with care and kindness? Uh, be considerate of her. Uh, live, with her live with her in an understanding way. Does it mean get to know her very well, study her, and, and love her according to the knowledge that we have of her? Uh, yes, it, it means that. Does it mean look not only to our own interests, but also to her interests? Yes, it means that. And yet, while not denying that, I am very persuaded by Tom Schreiner's other quote uh, on uh, this phrase. It, 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 live with your wives in an understanding way. The, the, the text says literally, live with your wives according to knowledge. God, according to knowledge. What does that mean? I'll give you... Tom Schreiner's observation. He says, I understand the phrase according to knowledge like in fear in the word to the wives in uh, verse 2. And conscious of God in chapter 2, verse 19, to refer to the husbands, or to refer to the relationship of husbands to God Husbands, then, should live together with wives informed by the knowledge of God's will, of what he demands them to do. So it doesn't deny the first things I said about caring and loving and, and living with our wives in an understanding way that way, but what he's adding here is live with your wives according to knowledge of God. Our wives 
under God, knowing the, that God calls us to love our wives and, and serve them and lay down our lives for them and, and nourish and cherish them just as Christ does the church, N knowing that God expects this of us, live with your wives that way, according to that knowledge that God is over you and you are called to submit to him. I'm helped by putting those two together and the Godward direction it orients me as a husband. You see how helpful that is? I mean, maybe I should explain it. I mean, as a husband, live with your wives and understand. I want to I love her, I wanna, but my whole focus isn't on her. It's on serving God who has called me to love her and submitting to his call in my life as I try to love my wife. Second observation, husbands, show honor to your wife as a weaker vessel because they are heirs of the grace of life. Our wives share the grace of God with us. They've received the imperishable inheritance in heaven that we've received, namely God and all that he is for us and all that he has for us in Christ. And therefore, we ought to treat our wives with great honor, with dignity, as dearly loved children of God. Brothers, if you're married, the woman you live with is of great worth to God. Therefore, Show her honor. There is that Godward dimension in, in play again. Honor her, esteem her highly. See her as a valuable gift to you, showing honor. Now what about the weaker vessel comment? It's simply a general truth. I just take it face value. The weakness in view is physical. It's not intellectual, it's not emotional, it's not spiritual. And it's, it's generally true, is it not, that biologically men's bodies are stronger than women's bodies? And of course there are a few exceptions, but the exceptions prove the rule. So the point here is that we husbands ought to show honor to our wives using the strength that we have to, to love her, to care for her, to serve her. And the implication is that we would be gentle with our wives and not use our strength to harm them, but rather to serve them for their good and for their protection. Now comes the, the warning. There's a sober warning attached to this text, and, and personally, it has had its good effect on me as a husband. A husband, live, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Really? So, if I live dishonorably toward my wife, we don't treat her as a weaker vessel. If I use my strength, against her, if I disparage the fact that she's a joint heir of the grace of life in my behavior toward her, toward her, when I pray, God will turn his ear from me. 
drop down to 1 Peter 3, 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, struggling with your prayer life, men? Love and honor your wife under the Lordship of Christ. Now, I need to close, and I wonder what happens in you when you come across texts like this that are aimed at certain groups within the church, you know, wives, husbands. And there are countless ways that this biblical teaching is, is attacked or ridiculed or undermined. It's attacked with arguments. It's ridiculed as it was by one evangelical author who mockingly claimed she was living out biblical manhood or biblical womanhood for a year. And it's undermined by husbands and wives in the church. How is it undermined? Excuse me. Well, apart from God's grace, apart from God's grace, I will look at a passage like this, and you know what I'll see? Man, God has a good word for my wife here. The great weight. Oh, man, she's got, I'm going to, she's got to get a, a recording. You know, she needs to sit down and watch this sermon. Happens all the time. Apart from grace. I cannot tell you how in 32 years of pastoral ministry, I've sat down with a, a couple in conflict, and I hear from the husband, she doesn't she didn't, she didn't submit to me. And I hear from the wife, he doesn't love me like Christ loves the church. And it's, it's a clear, it's a, it's a symptom and a cause, a symptom and a cause of a stuck marriage because they're oriented on the other and not on God to fulfill his calling on them to the other. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard this. Such... <laughs> So to illustrate it, I thought, I'd, I thought I'd add a chapter to the screw tape letters. You know the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis? Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a collection of letters from, it's, this is fiction. It, it's a, yeah, be careful, be careful. <laughs> it's, a, it's a collection of letters uh, from a senior demon named Screwtape and he advises his young Padawan, his young apprentice demon, his nephew, uh, Wormwood, on how to tempt uh, believers and dishonor God. And I, I really do believe this is satanic, demonic, evil, sinful for us to deflect the word of God away from us and pick it up to swing it at somebody else like our wife or husband. So let me try it. it <laughs> so you get the, get the context. This is from Screwtape, senior, wise, 
crafty demon, his advice to the younger apprentice Wormwood on how to serve the devil and undermine the work of God. Dear Wormwood, get your client, namely the believer, who is a husband to be most fixated upon the passages that address wives. And get the wives to be most fixated upon the passages addressed to husbands. Thereby, you will thwart the sanctifying work of the Bible, the enemy, the enemy in the demon's mind. You will, you'll, you will thwart the sanctifying work of the enemy from the Bible in the wives and increase division in the marriage and get the husbands most fixated upon the passages addressed to their wives and thereby you will thwart the sanctifying work in the husbands and increase division in the marriage. Keep the husbands focused on how their wives fail to live up to these texts and keep the wives focused on how their husbands fail to live up to these texts. In this way, you will deflect the power of the enemy's word and in the place of a growing love and holiness and harmony and honor to God will be instead selfishness, blame, alienation, and self-righteous pride. Husbands, may it not be so with us. Wives, may it not be so with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is so good, and we thank you for it. And how I pray that these texts would create in our marriages, in our church, a culture, a biblical manhood and womanhood where husbands love their wives like this and wives submit to their husbands like this and, and husbands flourish and wives flourish and, and there's a happy, beautiful, compelling, winsome dynamic in our in our homes and in our churches that would give glory to you and, uh, and point to you, even, even be a pointer to you among those who do not yet know you. So I pray that you would help us live this text for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.